We'll turn in your Bibles to John 17 this morning, and I want to welcome not only you who are in the room, but also those uh, online, and uh, invite them as well to turn to John 17. We're in the last moments of Jesus' earthly ministry. We're moments away from Jesus' uh, arrest. We're hours away from Jesus' crucifixion, and Jesus takes this time, and he dedicates it to praying to his Father in heaven. And in it, we learn some truths about prayer. John, wanting to tell us all that we need to know about Jesus, tells us about his miracles and tells us about his messages and shares his methods of loving the world and leading people to Christ. But here we see Jesus in the most important time of his earthly ministry, dedicating it to a conversation with his father. And as we see Jesus praying, most specifically today, praying for us, we are reminded of the great importance that prayer is in our lives. If Jesus being immortal, if Jesus being omniscient and all-powerful, then surely if He saw fit to pray, we who are finite, we who are broken, we who are frail, should pray all the more. I like what E.M. Bounds says when he says this about prayer. He says, prayer should not be regarded as a duty which must be performed, but rather as a privilege to be enjoyed. Do you enjoy the opportunity that you have to pray? Is it something you see as a duty or a drudgery or something that you get to do? A privilege. Now notice he says it's a rare delight that is always revealing some new beauty. What Jesus is declaring to us is the great opportunity we have as followers of his to pray. In John 17, we have what is what I'd like to coin the Lord's real prayer or the real Lord's prayer. And in it, we see that Jesus not only shows us the importance of prayer, but he tells us what we should be praying about. Notice Jesus doesn't pray a lot about where he's at health-wise. He doesn't pray a lot about his circumstances. What he prays about is that the character of his people would be revealed. That the people of this world would fulfill the mission that God has for them. And if you're like me, without Jesus' example, our prayer lives might seem like they're okay. But when they're put against what Jesus is praying about, it sure seems like my prayers are more self-centered than maybe they should be. And that brings us to the last thing that we see within this prayer. This prayer is a selfless prayer of Jesus's. Jesus has so much to worry about. So much to be concerned about, and yet he dedicates this time right before, if you will, the forces of evil are going to do everything in their power to beat him up or to knock him down. Jesus takes time to not pray so much for himself, but for us. And later on in next week's passage, we'll see that he prays for those who still haven't even believed yet, who will receive the message from us, his followers. And so here we have this great example of prayer. And what we will do as Christians is do what we normally do when it comes to prayer. We will take all kinds of information about what prayer is, tools to be able to help us in prayer, and we'll say, now I've got all that I need to pray. 
One of the greatest excuses that Christians use as to not praying is they don't know how to pray or don't know what to pray about. And so we buy all kinds of books and all kinds of resources to teach us how to pray. And the sad thing is it never gets us to pray anymore. For an example, some years ago, a popular book came out that took the world by storm on the subject of prayer. It was simply entitled The Prayer of Jabez. How many remember The Prayer of Jabez? You are one of the 10 million copies that was sold in the United States. This book really took off. And it was focused in on this very unknown passage of Scripture out of 1 Chronicles. I don't have any issues with the book. But I want to use it as a way to remind us that we have more knowledge about prayer than we ever know what to do with. Now, what this book did was not only talk about prayer, but it branded prayer in every chapter of life. You had the prayer of Jabez for men, the prayer of Jabez for women, the prayer of Jabez for teens, for kids, for dog lovers, for cat lovers. You had the prayer of Jabez keychain, chewing gum, mints. Man, we had the prayer of Jabez everywhere. A study was done some years afterwards. A survey of the people who had bought the book and who had gone through the study guides and who had gotten involved in all of it. And the question was, are you praying anymore? And the answer across the board was no. You see, as Christians, we love to talk about prayer, but it doesn't move us to pray. So as we look at this model of prayer of Jesus... I want to show you what Jesus prays and what Jesus thinks of us. And my hope is, here's the one application, that you would take what you hear today and it would cause you, it would compel you, it would convict you to pray. And Jesus isn't so concerned about how you pray or the posture of your prayer or the timing of your prayer. What Jesus wants is you to pray. And what I want you to know is this truth. One theologian said it this way. Prayer is simply a conversation between friends. And so what I want to do is I want to show you how much Jesus thinks of you. The kind of friend he wants to be to you. And in turn, that you would recognize, if that's what Jesus thinks of me, I want to all the more be in ongoing conversation with him. So let's see four things from this prayer, the middle part of this prayer in John 17, that Jesus says about us, or feels about us, or thinks about us, or what he's doing for us, and how it should impact our prayer lives. The first truth I want you to see this morning is quite simple, but it will come across a bit odd to you, and it's this. Jesus is proud of you. Jesus is proud of you, or he is proud of us. Now, that kind of sounds a little bit odd, and amidst the circumstances, we need to recognize that it doesn't seem to make any sense at all. Here we have Jesus praying. In a matter of moments, what's going to happen with the twelve or the eleven disciples that are left? Judas is about to betray Jesus. The eleven are going to do a whole bunch of dumb things. They're going to desert Jesus. They're going to disown Jesus. They're going to discredit Jesus. They are going to uh, doubt Jesus. I mean, there's just going to be a whole lot of dumb things that the disciples do. And in that moment, you would have thought that there would have been some remorse some regret, some sorrow that Jesus had picked these disciples. You would have thought that Jesus would have prayed in this prayer. Now I pray for the disciples who have lost their minds. 
I'm going to pray for these disciples who I've taught to stay faithful, who are utterly faithless. But notice in the text, especially in verses 9 through verses uh, 15 and 16, you have no words of remorse, no words of regret by Jesus. In fact, what you have are words of deep love and possessiveness of Jesus with regards to you and me. At the disciples' worst, at our worst, Jesus says to the Father, I love them, and He speaks words of great affirmation about us. Notice a couple things. First of all, notice all of the possessive terminology that we see. He says this, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me. What He's saying to the Father is, those people, you and I, His followers, are His. Notice he says, yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know everything that you've given me is from you. For I've given them the words that you gave me, and they've received them, and have come to know the truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them, and I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and all yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Let's stop there. You don't hear any remorse, any regret. There is no distancing of the disciples from Jesus. If there was ever a time that Jesus would want to distance himself from his disciples, it's this moment. Let us be honest that the disciples are going to do everything in their power to distance themselves from Jesus, right? I want you and I to hear this and to hear this loud and clear this morning. In our worst moments, Jesus is never closer to us. Let me say that again. In your worst moments, in your most shameful, in your most sinful moments, Jesus is saying the same things He would say of His disciples, You are Mine. Now, uh, to illustrate this, uh, I want to go back to history. About a week ago, we celebrated an anniversary of an event, one of the most profound events that would ever happen in professional sports history. It would happen in Cincinnati at a baseball game. In 1947, the Brooklyn Dodgers were playing the Cincinnati Reds. This is the first year that Jackie Robinson is uh, breaking the color barrier in Major League Baseball. As a result, the individuals who did not want African Americans playing the game of baseball started to really give it to Jackie Robinson. He was receiving death threats. He, he was receiving letters, terrible letters, about his wife and his children. Uh, accusations about him. Hurtful, bigoted, and racist things being uttered from the stands for the entire game. How that man was able to endure it, I, I, I cannot comprehend that. The amount of agony and sorrow he faced and pushback that he had. Well, it came to a fever pitch uh, during a game, the first inning of a game in Cincinnati. Cincinnati had given him multiple death threats. You come, you will die in Cincinnati. You will not leave Cincinnati from this road trip. He goes out in the first inning, and they let him have it. The sports writers of that day said it seemed as if everybody was against Jackie Robinson in Cincinnati. That was until the middle of the first inning. Pee Wee Reese, the hometown hero, because he was a native northern Kentucky lifelong resident. All of his friends and family are in the midst. 
Pee Wee Reese does the unthinkable. During the game, he stops the game and walks over to Jackie Robinson and puts his arm around him. The sports writers that were there that day said the crowd went from hurling insults to Jackie Robinson to being rendered mute. Here the enemies stop accusing because another came and associated with him. This moment would be memorialized in a, in a statue that would be placed just a couple of years ago in Brooklyn. It was called the Embrace. Simply the Embrace. What I want you to know is this. When you sin, and the world and your enemies and the devil himself comes and accuses you of wrong and calls you out and he says how worthless you are and how stupid you are and broken you are and sinful you are. In that moment when you're receiving all of this and probably much of it, unlike Jackie Robinson, much of the pushback we get because of our sin is, is due us, if you will. It is in that moment, listen to me church, that Jesus comes and he puts his arm around us. And he renders, listen to me, our enemies mute because Jesus says, I'm with them, they're with me. Oh, if we would grab a hold of this, our prayer lives would change. Now notice, not only does he do that, just even as we are sinful, but I want you to know how he does that. Notice that it says what he sees. In verse 6, Jesus says the following. He says of his disciples and us today, he says these six words, and they have kept your word. Now, Jesus, you've got to be kidding me. How can you say of the disciples that they've kept your word? What I want you to know this morning is Jesus doesn't see you where you're at. Jesus sees you where you're going. Now let me say that again, because obviously you're still sleeping. Jesus doesn't see you where you're at. He sees you where you're going. Jesus says, I began a good work in you. I am seeing you now at completion. Jesus doesn't see you in the midst of the race, as you will, running for your life. Jesus sees you when you cross the finish line as the victor. Now, we do this as parents with our children, especially as our children grow older. As our children grow older, we don't see our children in their mistakes. We don't see them in their sin. Let me use my three boys as an example. My three boys are not perfect boys by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, They've done a lot of dumb things. They've sinned. They've done all kinds of things. And let's face it, their mom's DNA runs in them strong. Right? And so they, they're just acting like their father, not their mother, of course. But here's the thing. When someone, when one of you will ask me, tell me about your sons, I don't sit there with a litany of, of things because in this moment, they're doing well. They're doing well in school. They're serving their communities. Of course, I'm so thankful to say they love Jesus and, and they love their mom and, and they're not like their dad. That's huge. And so I talk about where they're going, not so much where they've been. And I want you to know that Jesus doesn't sit there. In fact, the Bible says that Jesus takes our sins and he casts them as far as the east is from the west. They're not even in his thoughts or in his mind. Because what Jesus has done is he sees us as victors. He sees us as righteous. And he says, listen, I know what they're going to do. 
I know what they're going to do. They're going to change the world. They're going to keep the word. Yes, they're going to fail from moment to moment, but they are going to impact the world just as I knew they would. Now notice, there's something that Jesus says that I think is really incredible. Notice that he goes on and he says in verse 10, all mine are yours. And all yours are mine. And man, if you would underline this, I think this would be so helpful for you. He says, I am glorified in them. Now, doesn't that kind of come to you like, wait a minute, something's wrong here. How can the perfect, infinite, all-knowing, all-powerful God, creator God, who is enthroned in praise and worship and adoration, how can He receive glory in me? How, how do I give Him glory? Again, I want to use the analogy of the parent to the child. As a young person, I got to play sports and be a part of things, and I loved it, Okay. Uh, for some today, or maybe even this week, uh, you have had the uh, joy of watching your child uh, walk uh, across the stage to receive a diploma, just as you did some time ago. What I've come to realize as a parent is there's one thing better than getting your own diploma. There's one thing better than hitting the game-winning hit in baseball, or having the solo in the concert, or having the lead in the play. And that one thing better than all of those things is watching your children do that that. Amen. You see, there's a couple of truths that I've learned as a parent that I didn't know as a kid. Number one, and kids, you should hear this. Number one, I had no earthly idea how much my parents loved me. If my parents, which I know they did, but if my parents loved me to the fraction that I love my children, holy cow, I would have worked really, really hard to make my parents prouder than they were because I, I now know how much they love me. Number two, I had no earthly idea how proud they were when things, when good things happened with me. And so I stand in those moments, and you do as well, and your kid, and let's just be honest, your kid's got the solo in the recorder play, you know, the recorder concert, and they just, and and, and you sit there, and it's terrible, right? And what do you do? You're not going like, oh, it's terrible. That's my kid. That's Squeaker. That's what we call him now. And he's great. You glory in that. Your kid's going to walk across the stage and get their diploma. That's our boy. That's our girl. We are glorified when our kids find success. Listen to me. When you walk in accordance with the wisdom and word of God, Jesus gets up out of the stands and he says, that's my brother. That's my sister. Those are the people that I went to the cross to die for. And he glorifies himself in what you do. And you need to grab a hold of that. You need to take ownership of that. So many of us are are in our sin and in our shame and we can't get beyond it. And we think it's because the Lord's convicting us. No, the devil wants us to be at arm's length from the Lord. Because if we're arm's length from the Lord, we will never pray. And if we never pray, we'll never be effective. And the devil's laughing all the way home saying, I got them thinking Jesus hates them. When Jesus is saying in this prayer, I love them. And I I couldn't love them any more than I do. And so we got to own that. 
And we've got to receive that because when we do, that conversation between friends will be free-flowing. I love what one of my friends, and he'll be here in a couple weeks to bring God's word to us, Ray Pritchard. He says this about it. Man, this is so good. God never looks down from heaven and says, you're such a loser. I'm through with you. He's not ashamed to be the God of those who trust in him. He does not judge us by what we are, but what we will someday be. He has destined us for heaven. And no matter how many mistakes we make along the way, God's grace is more than sufficient to cover them all. He intends to take all of his redeemed children to heaven. And not one of them will fail to make it. Now, some of us will run triumphantly. Others will stumble across the finish line. But by God's grace, we will prevail because God is not ashamed to be our God today, tomorrow, and forever. Amen. And so, church... Grab this truth. Jesus loves you. Jesus wants to be near you. And at your worst moment, Jesus is putting his arm around you saying, I've never wanted to be closer to you than I am right now. And when we see Jesus in that light, all we're going to want to do is talk with him. All we're going to want to do is spend time with him. So Jesus is proud of you. Second, Jesus is providing for you. These next three points are much shorter, so you know that you're going to get out of here soon, okay? He's providing for you. Notice in verse 6, Jesus says, I have manifested your name. Some translations don't have your name there. It just says, I've manifested you. I like that the ESV has that there, because I think it's unfortunate not to have your name. And here's why. In the Hebrew culture, your name was the totality of who you are. And so what Jesus is saying is, I have declared, I've made manifest, I've made evident God the Father, all of who you are, to your children. Now, that's important because these Jewish individuals who are hearing this, John and the disciples are hearing Jesus pray this, and they have come to realize and know in the Jewish faith, nobody sees the Father. In the Jewish faith, no one hears from the Father. In the Jewish faith, the Father is far off. But with the incarnation of Jesus Christ, that which was far off, Jesus, God, came near. God put on flesh and made His dwelling among us. We beheld the glory, the glory of the one and only Father, God, in heaven. And that's why the Apostle Paul says, in Christ, the fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form. So Jesus is right when He says, if you've seen Me... You've seen the Father. Now I want you to notice what he says. It's so important. He says here in verse 8, For I have given them the words that you gave me. The picture here is that Jesus and the Father in heaven had a conversation. So they're talking amongst themselves and all of that. Jesus leaves that conversation and now comes to us and he tells us the exact things that the Father shared. So when we listen to the words of Jesus, listen to me, we have everything we need to find success in this world. That's why the Apostle Paul says we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing under heaven. We have everything we need, the Apostle Peter says, for life 
and godliness. There's nothing that we are lacking. And the reason why is Jesus came. He announced to us all that the Father had so that when we hear from Jesus, when we read these words of Jesus, we know, listen to me, church, the mind and heart of God Himself. And we have everything we need to accomplish what God is requiring of us. Jesus is proud of us. Jesus is providing for us. Number three, Jesus is protecting us. He's protecting us. Now Jesus moves to praying a prayer of supplication, just like you and I do, which is a bit odd because Jesus, who needs nothing, is requesting something. Now what Jesus is doing is He is serving, as we learned in the book of Hebrews, as our sympathetic Savior. And Jesus is identifying with us in our needs And He is interceding for us to the Father. Now, I'm going to share some things theologically that are going to sound a little odd. And I'm going to want to just affirm some things first and then I'm going to talk to to you about it. Number one, first of all, God knows everything. Okay? So I want you to walk away saying, "Did did Pastor Tim say God doesn't know everything? God knows everything. He has a limitless knowledge. Everything about us He knows. But there's a difference between knowledge and experience. Would everybody agree with that? There's a difference between knowledge and experience. I can know things that I haven't experienced. God has some things in His life that He's never experienced. God has never experienced telling a lie because God cannot lie. God has not experienced falling to sin because He can never be tempted or fall to sin. So there are things that God hasn't experienced. One of the things that God hasn't experienced prior to Christ was being human. Right? He knows what it's like to be God. He's experienced the the experience of being God. But here Jesus... I think what Jesus is saying to the Father as a sympathetic God-man, meaning 100% God, 100% man, He goes to the Father and He says, Listen, Father, I know what it's like to be human. It's not easy being human. Some of you need to hear that today because some of us think that Jesus is looking down His nose and saying, I live perfectly, why couldn't you? Jesus knows what it's like to be frail like us. Jesus knows what it's like to have the world tempting us and the devil trying to deceive us. Jesus experienced that. Now he goes to the Father who has not experienced that. God the Father has not experienced life here on earth. He knows it, but he hasn't experienced it. And notice what Jesus says on our behalf. As the sympathetic Savior, he says to the Father, listen, you got to keep them. You gotta watch with, watch over them. Notice he says, I'm no longer in the world, verse 11, but since they are in the world, I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. We'll talk about that next week. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given them, or given me, and I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. 
What Jesus does is on our behalf, He intercedes to the Father and He tells the Father, listen, Father, I want to tell you something that you've not experienced. What it is to be a human. It's not easy. And it's taken all of who I am, this cup that I've wanted to pass, it has taken all of who I am to be faithful and true. And I have, Jesus says. But now I'm asking that you will give them the help they need. What is Jesus asking for? He's asking, he's petitioning the Father, send the Holy Spirit to keep and guard them just as Jesus did of the disciples. Now, notice what Jesus says. Jesus says God is going to do that. That in Christ, because of Christ, we have 100% success to be kept in the faith once we've come to faith. But then Jesus brings up, and it's important we draw this out, Jesus brings up Judas. And he says, I've kept all of them except Judas. And he says of Judas, he calls him the son of destruction. And he says that the scriptures were going to be fulfilled. Now, here's the thing we need to know about Judas. Judas did not surprise Jesus with his betrayal. Earlier in Jesus' ministry, Jesus speaks to the disciples, fully knowing it's Judas. He says, one of you is the devil. Later, he would say, on two occasions, one of you is going to betray me. As Judas is contemplating betrayal, Jesus tells him to go do what you were planning and do it quickly. Jesus always knew that though Judas was with him, he wasn't with him. Does that make sense? Which is a stark reminder, church, that you can hang around Jesus, you can experience the blessing of Jesus, you can sit under the teaching of Jesus and never be with Jesus. One-eighth of the disciples thought that they could gain salvation by osmosis, by proximity. Could it be that one-eighth of this group here today might be falling under the same thinking? Some of you are like, listen, I'm with Jesus because my parents are with Jesus. I'm with Jesus because my pastor is with Jesus. I'm with Jesus because my friends are with Jesus. And you, like Judas, aren't with Jesus. You're hanging around. You're seeing all that Jesus is doing. You might even enjoy it. We never hear a bad word from Judas except... When the woman breaks the alabaster jar and he says very hypocritically the money could be given to the poor of which Jesus says that Judas was stealing at that point. You see, the world, Judas is the picture of the world that Jesus is trying to protect us from. Judas allowed the world in. Brothers and sisters, the world is just as dubious and scheming as it was then and some of us are falling prey to it. And we're falling prey to it because we're more entangled by the world than enthralled by Jesus. And Jesus says that those that are with him, they're going to remain faithful. Now, notice Peter, James, and John, and the like, they failed Jesus. To be with Jesus doesn't mean perfection. What it means is persevering. Judas didn't persevere, and it proved that he was never with Jesus. I don't want to strike fear in any child of God that they're Judas. But I do want to speak to the Judases in the crowd and say, turn to Jesus before it's too late. 
Stop thinking that because you're close to Jesus or because you're here, you're in. The way that you know you're in is that you obey Jesus and you love Jesus and you live for Jesus. And when you fail, you run back to Jesus and you seek Jesus' forgiveness and His cleansing. If that's not a part, if that cycle is not a part of your life, then you should stop and you should take uh, stock of your life and ask the question, am I really in Christ or am I like Judas trying to deceive myself and deceive others? And sadly, Judas wouldn't know until it's too late. And some of us right now are living that betraying life. And so what are we to do? We pray. We pray. I was meeting with a mentor uh, this week for lunch, and I was asking him about his prayer life. And he says, Tim, you would think I've written books on theology and, and done lots of big Bible studies and all that, but my prayer life is far more... Um, lower level if you will he says i pray a simple prayer every day lord forgive me i'm a sinner have mercy on me and he says i find myself saying that over and over and over again forgive me lord i'm a sinner have mercy on me and that resonated with me because I think we think we got to pray all of these long and verbose prayers and simply it's a conversation. Lord, would you be with me? Lord, would you forgive me? Lord, would you have mercy on me? And if we would just come to that place, a reminder that we're a sinner and that our sin is great, but greater is our Savior. And greater is His mercy. If we would be a part of that, the Judas elements in our lives would run away. The devil wouldn't have the opportunity. If we'd be praying that, instead of watching some of the things we do, instead of reading some of the things that we read, instead of participating in some of the things we do, if that would be a part of our lives, it would be amazing how the temptations that we face on a daily basis would flee from our lives. Judas loved the world, and he got entangled in the world, and instead of being enthralled by Jesus in prayer... He lost his soul. And could it be that some here today might be on the same path and missing the blessing that would come? Now notice what the blessing is, and I need to get moving here, and we'll close here in a moment. But notice what the blessing is. Jesus says it. He says in, uh, let's see here, verse uh, 13, he says that I'm coming to you, that these things I speak in the world, that his people, us, might have his joy fulfilled in themselves. What Jesus is saying is the world's going to tell you, the world told Judas, get money and you'll be happy. The world's telling us, believe the lies of the world and you will be happy. Jesus says, if you'll walk with me, if you'll engage in an ongoing relationship with me, my joy will be fulfilled in you. Now, listen, I know the joy of the world. There's a lot of joy you can find in the world, but I will tell you, I'd rather have Creator Jesus' joy than the counterfeit joy of the world. And so we want to experience that joy. And what it means is my final thing that Jesus tells us. It means we've got to partner with Jesus because He's partnering with us. Notice we see all of this in the text that tells us that Jesus is with us. He says uh, the following... He says, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself 
that they also may be sanctified in truth. I want you to know, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, remember, Jesus is with you in the good, the bad, and ugly of your life. He is with you like the closest of friends. He's going to see you to the finish line. But that doesn't mean He's dragging you along the way. He has called you. He's empowered you. He's enabled you. To walk in step with Him. That's what He means when He says twice sanctify them. So what does sanctification look like? It means looking less like the world and more like Jesus. And so our goal isn't to try to get ourselves to the finish line. The goal we have is to simply be ready to run the race that we've been given. And then we got to leave the results to God. We run the race to the best of our abilities and we leave the results to God. And so let me ask you, how well are you running this race? How well are you in the process of sanctification? Notice he says your, his word is the key element of it. Are you in the word? Are you praying? Are you involved? And you say, but yeah, that stuff doesn't uh, seem too positive or good to me. It doesn't seem like much fun. It's the discipline that's going to get you through life. Are those things a part of it? Jesus says we need to be sanctified. We need to be less like the world and more like him. And Jesus says that he fulfilled his ministry. He did his work. So that you and I can have this confidence. Listen to me. That you, in running your race, will win the victory. This last week, our, our teenagers had state track. And I remember, I, I, it's near and dear to me, I, I got to go down state for track. And I remember my coach telling me this. If you throw your best, because I wasn't, I know it surprises you, I wasn't a two-miler, I was a discus and shot put thrower. But my coach said this, if you throw your best, you'll win state. Confidence. I know what you've thrown, I've seen what you've thrown, I know what everybody else has thrown. If you do that, you'll win. Well, I didn't do that, end of the story, so sad. Okay? What Jesus is saying to you as your friend and as your coach, listen to me very carefully and we'll close it out. If you live up to what Jesus has given you, you'll be victorious. You don't have to worry about the person running next to you. You don't need to worry about the devil getting in the way. You don't need to worry about the weather. You don't need to worry about anything else. If you will live up to what Jesus has already done for you, you're already a victor. And here's the thing, the cream on top of it. And Jesus says, but I know running that race is hard. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to run alongside you every step of the way. And if that warms your heart, then I would encourage you to start talking with that friend and engaging with that friend who says, I saw you from the beginning and I'm going to see you to the end. Amen? So run the race with perseverance. That which is marked out for you. And in the end, you will be the victors. Jesus says, I already see you at the finish line. And there, he is cheering us every step of the way. Man, if we would grab a hold of this, how our prayers would be different.